you can open to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we're going to be starting in verse number 9. Romans chapter 4, verse number 9. I would like to just remind you as we get started tonight about the assignment that is due, our first assignment. Uh, most of you have sent it in. There's still, I believe, one or two people that haven't sent in their first year assignment, or let's say their first assignment for the year. So please be sure to try to get that in tonight if you can. And then I'll try to have it graded this week as well. Uh, also, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to remind you of the outline that we're working with for Romans 4, and to try to give you a little bit of an overview and a catch-up, and then we'll get into verse number 9. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege and the opportunity to uh, open up the Word of God and go a little deeper. Lord, as we talked about this morning, we look forward to you working in our hearts. We know that your Word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And if there's anything that can whittle us down and that can form us and mold us after the image of Christ, it is your Word. So thank you for this privilege. Please help all of us now. As we study, I pray that the Spirit of God would guide us into all truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 4. And the outline that I gave you a couple weeks ago in uh, Romans class was, was this for the fourth chapter. We'd, and remember, we've already covered verses 1 to 8. And that was the portion where we looked at Abraham's praise before God. And he achieved this not by his own works, but by faith. And that's why God gave him righteousness. And then verses 9 to 12. Abraham's circumcision proves something. It proves something. Specifically in this case, it proves that the Gentiles are included in the promise. And we'll look at that just now. The next portion, verses 13 down to 16. We're going to look specifically at Abraham's promise. This is the the promise God gave to him of the everlasting covenant as it pertained to the kingdom. And then the chapter at the end turns quite practical, and we're going to look at Abraham's powerful faith. That starts at verse number 17. All right, so uh, let me also, just to remind you of what, what we're dealing with, at the end of chapter 3, Paul begins to make a comparison. If you look at verse 27, he says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So there's two laws, or I'm going to use the word systems. They, I, I think they're synonymous in this case. There are two systems at work here. Paul is comparing the system of works versus the system of faith. So on one side, you have, the, you have a promise, you have faith, you have grace. And then over against that, you have the law, you have works, and you have debt or a reward system, right, based on obedience or disobedience. And Paul is comparing those two things. He's already shown in the beginning of chapter 8, Abraham received righteousness by faith in a promise that God gave him. So this operating system of faith, it excludes boasting, it gives a person righteousness, and then Paul, in verses 6, 7, and 8, he quotes from Psalm 32. He, he uses David to support his point. 
that a man is truly blessed who receives righteousness in this manner, to have this imputed righteousness. Now, this brings us to verse number 9. Paul poses a question. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? Now, this was a very meaningful question in these days because, as you know by now, we've been covering this a little bit in Romans, but especially in Galatians. We've talked about this heresy that was moving around in the early days of the church uh, with the Judaizers trying to teach that people, once they had faith in Christ, that faith was then going to be perfected or, or made complete by them becoming Jewish. And they thought that this promise only applied to Jewish people. So if you weren't Jewish, you weren't in. So they were trying to tell Gentiles, you have to take on Jewish customs and lifestyle and culture and all of that. So the question is, does this promise, does this blessing of imputed righteousness, the system of faith, does this only apply, this blessedness only apply to Jews? Or can Gentiles also be included in this? Now, Paul's going to offer some proof from the Old Testament to show Gentiles are most definitely included. At the end of verse 9, For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. All right, so he says he got it. We say that he got it by faith. So now is this, is this righteousness, does it only flow down through Abraham's physical seed or does it apply to everyone? Verse 10, How was it then reckoned? when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? And then he answers his question, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. So Paul has gone back to the book of Genesis once again, and he says, take a look at the condition, Abraham's physical condition, when he received righteousness. He was uncircumcised at that time. And that shows that a, an uncircumcised person, a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, can be made righteous in the sight of God. They can be included in the promise, and they can receive it by faith. That's how Abraham received it. So, if you think of it, uh, if I can break it down into three sections here. If you look at the book of Genesis, you get chapter 15, Abraham receives righteousness by faith. And then, chapter 17, God gives Abraham this sign of the righteousness that he had, this sign of circumcision. It was, a, it was a sign of the covenant, a token, to say that I have promised this to you. It was an outward evidence. And then, chapter 22, Genesis 22, you have a story of Abraham being obedient, and that proved that his faith was genuine. It proved that he was indeed a righteous man. So, so look at the order of this. And Paul, he picked up on the order of it. You'll see it as it comes out in this chapter. Faith brings righteousness. Then there is a seal or a token or some evidence that you have been made righteous. And then your works prove that your faith was genuine. That sounds very, that sounds very much like the New Testament situation that we have. Faith in Christ, imputed righteousness we receive the seal of spiritual circumcision. We're going to talk more about that just now. And then our works show others that we do indeed have faith. So if we can take this, uh, take just a moment to think about this, because this morning I preached about going deeper. 
into your own personal Bible study and your knowledge of the Bible. I want you to notice how deep Paul goes with this. When he's reading through Genesis, he doesn't just read it as history, although it is history. It, it's factual history. He looks at it and, and looks into the timing of it and says, what happened when? Did he get this righteousness when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? So he sees Abraham as a type of New Testament salvation. When you're able to see types and pictures, that is what the Bible qualifies as the meat of the Word, when you're able to see those types and pictures. Now, he goes deeper, and he says, now, in this type, I'm not only going to learn from the type, I'm going to learn from the timing of the type. I'm going to look at his, he was uncircumcised, and then the seal came in late. He, he breaks that thing down and gets so much out of the Scripture. I, and I want to bring to your attention how you can see this in some other passages. When you look at Noah, for instance, right? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So when you read the story of Noah, you are reading a picture, a type of somebody living in the end times, in the tribulation, you can say. But before Noah, you have Enoch. Enoch was taken to heaven without dying. And that happens before the days of Noah. So this gives me a wonderful picture. And the timing of it, the timing of it is, is breathtaking. You have a rapture, somebody's taken to heaven without death, and then the tribulation. That seems to fit perfectly with a pre-tribulation rapture, and then the time of trouble, and then Noah steps out into a new earth. And I, I say new earth, let's say uh, renovated by the flood, right? But he steps out into a, a, a new opportunity. That is exactly how we find the prophetic story of the New Testament, how things will unfold. When you read the story of Moses smiting the rock, right? So in Exodus 17, he smites the rock and the waters flow out. Now, I hope you know the picture of that, what, what, what that is a picture of. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. When Paul read the story in Exodus 17, he wasn't just reading about Rephidim, Moses, Joshua. and He wasn't just reading that. It is history, but that history teaches a lesson. It's a type. So you hit the rock, and out comes water. You smite Christ, you hang Him on a cross, out comes the water of life. Any man drinks of this, he'll never thirst again. Exodus 17, Moses hit the rock. But then in Numbers chapter 20, this is much later, the people are once again murmuring and complaining. And Moses gets down on his face and begins to pray and says, God, these people are too much for me. And what do I do in this time? Because they wanted water. They were thirsty. And this time, God said to Moses, take your rod. Don't hit the rock. Go talk to it. Go talk to it. Now, we know what happened. Moses, he, he, the one time, right? He was the meekest man in all the earth, but the one time he lost his temper, whew, the people got the better of him. He was tired of their complaining. And he stepped up and he said, you bunch of rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And wham, he smacked the rock again. And in so doing, he messed up the picture, the type. 
Because once you smite Jesus once, once he is crucified one time, you don't have to crucify him again and again and again. The sacrifice has been made once and for all. And now, right after you have received the crucified Jesus as your Savior, once you have received that, you don't need to, if you mess up in the future, you don't need to go and re-crucify him again. What do you do? You go speak to him. If, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. See, that's written to somebody who's already saved, who's already been to the rock and accepted the smitten rock. It shouldn't have been smitten a second time. In all of those types, there, there are so much we can learn. So I didn't want to pass up this opportunity. I realize that's a little out of the scope of what we're studying in Romans. But I want you to see that Jesus obviously is the best example of somebody going deeper into his Bible study. But Paul, beside Jesus, I know of no one better than the Apostle Paul at digging deep in the Scripture and, and seeing these wonderful lessons. Now let's continue on in, in Romans chapter 4, verse number 11. The Bible says here, And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, speaking about the Gentiles. So the last half of the verse, Paul is not repeating, but he's just emphasizing the point that he's trying to make, that... Abraham received the promise and received righteousness before his circumcision. And this way, Abraham can rightfully be called the father of us all. Later on in this chapter, a few verses from now, it'll say the father of many nations. And that's a fitting title for Abraham because he's physically the father of the Jewish nation, but spiritually speaking, he has set the example of faith. And now anyone that is in Christ, you are in Abraham's seed. And we talked about this in Galatians. And now you're spiritually connected to Abraham that way. So he's rightfully called the father of us all. Now, in the beginning of verse 11, we, we need to take a moment with that because it says he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised. So righteousness comes first, then the seal. Now, Romans 4 verse 11 gets used by Reformed theology to prove that infant baptism will make somebody part of the covenant. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time unpacking how they get to that. Let me just give you the short version for now. We'll, we'll discuss it a little bit more when we come into Colossians uh, chapter 2, because we're going to cover that this year as well. But how it's usually explained is that circumcision in the Old Testament has been replaced by baptism in the New Testament. And then, now you have to assume that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, but that is assumed. Now the reason they assume it is because in Colossians 2 verse 11, you read about a spiritual circumcision. And then the next verse says, buried with him in baptism. So circumcision and baptism, they're mentioned one verse on top of another. But nowhere does it say in those verses that baptism has replaced circumcision. And that's why I say in Colossians class, we'll cover that a little bit more.
So what they do is say circumcision has been replaced with baptism. Then you take it another step. Based on that assumption, you then say that circumcision was given to infants. So that's why it's okay to baptize infants. Now, back in the early days of the church, when they baptized an infant, they baptized them. They would hold that baby's feet and that pinch that baby's nose and plunk it down underneath the water and bring it up. They properly immersed the baby. Sprinkling came in a little later on. But again, that's outside the scope of what we're trying to look at, so let me try to stick to, to the problem at hand. Verse 11, it does say that circumcision was a sign. It was a seal of the righteousness of faith. And people will then say, but in the New Testament, baptism is a symbolic gesture of the faith that we have. That I agree with. Baptism is an outward symbolic gesture of what has inwardly taken place. I have been, I have been crucified, buried, and risen with Christ, and we can, we can illustrate that with water baptism. So I understand when somebody says symbolic gesture. I'm good with that. However, biblically speaking, the, the, the Bible never uses those words symbolic gesture or baptism as a sign or a seal. It doesn't use that language. Baptism, as we see it explained in the New Testament, follows belief. Babies can't believe, right? So that's, that's I, maybe I shouldn't go down that trail, but when we're talking about the seal of righteousness, baptism is part of obeying the Lord, but it has nothing to do with being the seal of the righteousness that we have. Take your Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Let me show you what this seal is. It has nothing to do with baptism at all. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 11. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. It says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. That is, God had a plan. And this you'll learn soon in Ephesians class. But verse 12, That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Do you see the seal that we have is not baptism. Our seal is the Holy Spirit, the fact that He dwells within. So you're going to see this in the book of Romans how Paul will progressively work up to that. And he will show in Romans 8 how the Spirit dwells within and bears witness with our spirit and how that indwelling and working of the Holy Spirit is evidence that we have been adopted. Uh, this should ring a bell for you if you were there in Galatians class. In Galatians chapter 4, we've already covered how God sent forth His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is evidence that you've been born again, that you, you've been adopted. Uh, just another page to the right. Get Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. He says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So I have been sealed. I have been given a seal. 
That seal is the Holy Spirit. And that seal, that proof, that, that evidence dwells within me and will dwell within me until the day of redemption. Now come back to Romans chapter 4 and verse number 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. True, me as well. When I got saved, I received the sign of circumcision. Colossians chapter uh, 2, verse 11. You're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. It's the circumcision of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit putting you into the body of Christ. All of that, that work of the Spirit, that's the seal, that's the sign. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. So that's Abraham's physical story. For me, it's a spiritual story. And then verse 11 at the end, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So Paul's just showing that it is possible for Gentiles to be a part of this. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. So, I can call myself, I, I, can, I can include myself in, in the circumcision aspect of this because of what's happened spiritually. So when we say father of circumcision, there's a physical, that's the Jewish thing, and then there's the spiritual, those are Gentiles who have received it by faith. And then he says at the middle of verse 12, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. So he's just rounding out that point. Everybody has access to this promise. Verse 13. He's going to move to a slightly different point now. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, this phrase, heir of the world, there are different ideas as to what Paul meant when he said heir of the world. Some people take that to mean that the Jews will inherit the Gentiles in the sense that in the millennium and even into eternity, Jews will rule over and reign over the Gentiles because sometimes in the Bible, we know that the word Gentiles and nations and world, sometimes those words are interchangeable. I don't think that's what Paul was getting at, but some people take it like that. Other people understand it to say heir of the world, that is, the Jews will live on the new earth. They will own the new earth when eternity begins. Now, you know from Revelation 21 that a new heaven and a new earth, and then there's new Jerusalem. That, those are the three aspects of, of, uh, of, of eternity that you read about there. So the idea is the Jews will have... Uh, access and live on the new earth. The Gentiles will populate the new heaven and all the various planets and so forth that might be in the new heaven. And then the body of Christ, we dwell in New Jerusalem with Jesus. Now, I'm just telling you how some people approach that. My personal opinion of this, when it says he should be made heir of the world, if you go back and look at what was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he specifically, God specifically mentions the land of Canaan. Now, it is called an everlasting covenant, right? And he does mention how kings would come forth. And we do know, we, we know that the land of Canaan, that's where the Jews, that's their, that's their land. It's been promised to them. But we also know 
that when Jesus comes back, it was promised that the Messiah would reign from Jerusalem, from the throne of his father David, and he would reign over the entire world. So this is a little bit of that idea of reigning over the Gentiles. But I think what we're, what we're looking at here is uh, Paul is repeating the promise that he should be heir of the world, that God promised the kingdom to Abraham. So I think just when he says the world, it's another way of referring to that kingdom age where Abraham, a Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're in the land. Jesus is seated upon the throne of, the fa of his father David, and he's ruling over the entire world from there. I, I think it's re just another reference to the kingdom. For the promise, verse 13, that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He's bringing that point to our attention because he's, gonna, he's going to further show this comparison between the two systems, the one of works and the one of faith, the law versus grace. So verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. This goes back to what we studied in Galatians 3. You might remember where Paul said that once a man confirms a covenant and gives an oath that nothing, no, you cannot disannul that covenant, that promise that was made. The deal is then done. And verse 14 is, is much, I, I, I believe he's, it's the same t type of thought that's running into this. If the original deal was conditional, you keep the law, then you get the land. If that was the system that God had originally set in place, then the whole idea of, let me just believe it so, well, that, that won't work. The original plan was, I do this and then I get a reward. But the original plan that God set up was, here's a promise, Abraham believed it. It was given to him by faith. The law, which was 430 years later, cannot come in and disannul that. It can't undo it. I, I, I hope this is a proper illustration. I hope this makes sense. But if you think of it like this, I, and you guys know, I'm not very technologically... Uh, I'm technologically challenged. <laughs> so I hope this is a proper illustration. Think of it like this. The promise is the operating system. When you, if you have a computer, you have an operating system, and the promise, that's the operating system. And then the law was added, that's just some software that was added to the operating system. And the law is something smaller, it fits within the operating system. It had a temporary purpose, see? The law, once that software, when software is added to a computer, it doesn't override the operating system, as I understand it. You, you have the operating system, and then you have smaller things that operate inside of that, or work inside of that, and it works along with it. So I, I think that might, if, if you've struggled to understand how these two systems can work together, it might be best to say the operating system of the promise and faith, and then the software of the law. That's maybe the better way to understand it. I hope that helps. Verse 14, it says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, 
and the promise made of none effect. So, as as I've mentioned, God's original deal was not conditioned on the law. Otherwise, there'd be no place to say, here, let me give it to you for free. The guy who had to earn it would say, hey, what's this business? But the original deal was, was a promise. Verse 15, he's going to further his argument. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. So when you look at the system of law and how that operates, if you break a law, you have to get punished. And that punishment, that's a curse that you're bringing down. That, right, Galatians 3. Cursed is the man that continues not in all things written in the law to do them. So where's the law going to end you up? Wrath. If that was the system that God originally put in place to say you have to do what I say, otherwise you don't get the kingdom. Nobody gets the kingdom then. Everybody ends up in wrath. And then there'd be no point in even talking or dangling the idea of, hey, maybe one day you'll live in a kingdom. Nobody can live up to that. So Paul is making a very strong point. The law works wrath. That's what it, by itself. Now, I'm not talking about how the law fits into the the operating system of the promise. If you just had the law and that's it, then all of us are going to fail. We all fall short. Nobody gets into the kingdom. Thank God that's not how it works. Now, verse 15, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in Romans 5, actually, because it says, the law worketh wrath. Well, that's right. There's a law, break a law, get a punishment. Where no law is, there's no transgression. What is sin? 1 John 3, verse 4, it says, sin is the transgression of the law. So if you remove the law you essentially remove sin. If you don't know that that law exists, then you're not going to be held accountable for breaking that law. Now, now be careful with this. Just because you take away the written law of the Old Testament, we all still have a moral law that operates in our hearts, right? So when it comes to things like thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery, those things are imprinted in our hearts. It's built into our moral capacity. But there are other laws that somebody could be completely ignorant of. For example, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? If God did not reveal to somebody that they need to do that, how would they know to do it? Uh, For that matter, let me throw in there the Sabbath day. If God did not reveal to somebody to say the seventh day is something special, and here's how I want you to use it, the, the Jews would not have known that there was anything special about the seventh day. So that's, this is where a lot of people make the distinction between a ceremonial law and a moral law. Now, back to the point I want to bring out in verse 15, where no law is, there's no transgression. This is, this is a good verse to use when you're talking about children, young children that die, right? That were not able to comprehend the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, then they are not guilty of any transgression. They did not understand even that moral law, that their conscience had not yet come, uh, let's say it had not yet awoken. Is that the right word? It, they, had, they had not had their eyes open to that yet. So we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to chapter 5. Now verse number 16, Paul says, Therefore it is of faith. So comparing the two systems, it it can't be the system of the law 
because that would just get your wrath. How do you have access to the promise? Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. So take, take a look at verse 4. Just remind yourself of this point that Paul made. In verse 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So, Paul, comparing these two systems, he says, if you take it by faith, then it can be by grace. See, God can offer something freely. You receive it freely. God doesn't owe you anything. Now, if you try to operate under the system of the law, then it's a matter of debt. You do something right, God owes you for it. But if God gave you, listen to this part, if God gave you what you deserved, if you had to pay the bill, the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says, as we well know, there are two deaths. Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That is what we deserve for breaking God's laws. So if that's the system you're trusting, I'm going to earn my reward. The reward you are going to get is not something you, you want. You don't want that bill. You don't want to pay for that. So God has a greater system. He has something much better, and that is a free offer that can be received by faith. It's offered by, through grace or by grace. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law. So not only for the Jews, this promise does not only apply to them, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. So all these Gentiles that are believing on Christ by faith, it, it applies to them as well. Who is the father of us all? Again, Paul's going back to that point that he's been making. But I want you to notice something in the middle of verse 16. He says, To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. If, if you are working under the system of the law, then you cannot be sure that you will enter the kingdom. And this is where a lot of people, I, I think this is a very important point to make for a lot of folks, because when you ask them, where are you going when you die? Do you know for sure that you're going to be with God forever? And people don't have that assurance. Why is it? They're trusting in the wrong system. They're trusting a system of works. And there are a lot of saved people that fall into this trap as well. They get saved by faith and then they believe that they have to live a certain way in order to keep themselves saved. Now, if you believe that, you're never going to have assurance. God wanted to make the kingdom a sure thing. How do you make it sure for everybody? You send your son to fulfill the promise. When Jesus came, died on the cross, rose again, He has fulfilled all the necessary requirements so that the kingdom can be available to anybody who will accept it by faith. He has not only made it possible for Gentiles now or anybody now to receive the free gift of salvation, but, and we talked about this last time in Romans class, He paid for the sins of the Old Testament saints, thus making it possible for them to enter the kingdom, making it a sure thing. So this system, this operating system of faith, right, 
This is the only way that God could be sure, or for God to make it a sure thing for us, so that everybody would have a chance and have access to entering into that kingdom. If God only had an operating system called law, then no one would ever make it. All right, so I hope that point is clear. Verse 17. Now we're going to shift to a slightly more practical thing. Verse 17. As it is written, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now notice how that's in parentheses. Yeah? So he just said, Abraham, who is the father of us all? Where does Paul get scriptural support for making such a statement that Abraham, who's commonly known as the father of the Jews, how can he get away with saying he's the father of us all? He finds support for this in Genesis 17, because that's where Abraham was called the father of many nations. So that's how Paul can get away with that. He's not just the father of one nation, but many nations. Now, let's keep going, verse 17. There's more to be said about that, but we'll see it just now. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. So now we're moving to a portion of the chapter where Paul is going to discuss why Abraham's faith was so strong. The strong faith of Abraham. Powerful faith. Why was it so strong? The beginning of verse 17, it says, Before him whom he believed, even God. Abraham was standing there having a conversation with the Lord. An omnipotent, omniscient, and immutable. Immutable God. The word immutable means he cannot change. This is a quality that the Lord himself brings to our attention in the book of Malachi. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3.6. He said, you want to know know why you Jews, who have been through countless destructions and enemies tried to wipe you out, you want to know why you're still around? It's not because you're great people. It's because I'm God and I made a promise and I always keep my word. Guys, our salvation is is a sure thing because God promised it. This is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. Why can... What would cause us to have a strong faith? It's not because I am a very capable man and I'm smart and intelligent and I can figure out how these things work and because I have this great understanding then I'll... No, no, no. My faith is strong because of the one who said it. Right? My faith is strong because it is God who gave me these promises. Me as a man, sometimes I struggle to believe that a God as great as He could be so merciful and gracious to a sinner like myself. But when I consider that God can't lie, even though it sounds too good to be true, we can still cling on to those promises and say, God, I don't see how you're going to do it. I don't even know why you would do that for me. But you said it, and I believe it. Now notice at the end of verse 17, he says, Even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. (laughs) You talk about going deep. Watch how deep he went. In Genesis 17, 
The statement that God made, Paul quoted it at the beginning of this verse, I have made thee a father of many nations. I have made thee. I'm going to just take a quick look at it. So I quote it just right. Uh, if you want to, you can also do it. Genesis 17. Yeah, verse 5. Genesis 17, 5. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations... Now watch it. Watch the tense of the verb. For a father of many nations have I made thee. That's past tense. That's past tense. But Abraham only had one child at this time. He only had Ishmael. Isaac hadn't been born yet. But he says, I have made thee a father of many nations. So coming back to Romans 4, that's why he says, He calleth those things which be not as though they were. God speaks of it as if it's already done. And obviously this is because God being the eternal God that He is, He knows that His promise is a sure thing. And when God makes a plan, that plan will work. Now, I'm not going to get into that too, too much, but when, when Garrett takes you through Ephesians, especially in chapter 1, you'll learn about that. And Well, even in Romans chapter 8, we're going to learn about this predestinated plan that God had that when a person enters into Christ, the Holy Spirit will enter into that person and start to work and will not finish that work until the day of Christ, until that person is resurrected, new body standing before the Lord. That is such a sure thing that you'll see in the New Testament at times where He speaks as if it's already been done. I wish we had time to dwell on that point more, but we need to keep going. Verse 18. Verse 18. He says, who against hope believed in hope. Against hope. So, Abraham hears these promises. He looks at his physical situation. He looks at his age. He looks at his wife's age. Here's a man almost 100. His wife is 90. And he says, there is no reason for me to believe this. There's no reason for me to have this hope. That is, this expectation. Why should I expect to be a father of many nations? I have one kid. I'm 99. Physically speaking, scientifically speaking, what should he expect? He should expect to be happy with Ishmael, who against hope believed in hope. So God comes and says, no, no, many nations. Kings will come from you. And he says, all right, God, I don't understand the science behind it. But you're a big God. You're a great God. And if you said it, I believe it. That's a strong faith. Guys, I, I don't want you to take this statement wrong. But I believe the Bible more than I believe science. Science is the study of natural things, right? The study of how nature works. It's observable, testable, repeatable facts. Science is not a bad thing. Please don't take my statement wrong. I'm not, I'm not putting science down. But there's God, and then there's science. God created the natural order. Science, God was the first one to start as a scientific exercise. He told Adam to name all the animals. That's the science of taxonomy. God's not against science. 
But God's bigger than science. And when God says something, even though scientifically, naturally, I don't know how it's going to work. I just want to believe what He said. I believe the Bible more than I believe science. Again, we just don't have time to dwell on that. But verse 18, Who against hope believed in hope that He might become the Father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So God gave that simple promise. He says, all right, if that's what you say about my seed, if that's how you predict my future, then Lord, I believe it. Verse 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about an hundred years old. He was actually 99, but that's why he says about an hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now we know, for obviously, Abraham... He was able to bear children. But he's now, uh, he, Ishmael, that was a few years back, right? When he was a young man of 86. And now he's 99. And he's looking at, at, his, at himself thinking, I don't think I can physically manage this. And I know Sarah can't because she's barren. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever asked for a chance to give God glory? Have you ever said, God, please use me in some way to glorify your name? Now, you know one of the greatest ways you can do that, to glorify His name, is to find yourself in an impossible situation and then against all the odds, cling to His Word and say, God, you said you're going to take care of me. And I believe it. And that gives Him glory. That puts such a smile on God's face. And friend, I'll be honest with you, that's tough, eh? When the pressures of life start bearing down on you, and I want to say the deadness of the world starts to affect you. You might, you might look at your business or your career and look at it and think, it's hopeless. It's dead. You might look at your marriage and go, sheesh. There's no fixing this. It's dead. Maybe it's a relationship with other friends or family, whatever the case is, and think there's just no coming back from this. This situation is impossible. And that is where you need to cling to the promises of God and say, God, I don't know how, I don't know how your grace is going to get me through this. All I know is you said that you'd be there for me. You said that all things work together for good. So God, I'm not giving up on you because you're never going to give up on me. That gives him glory. I've told this story before, but several years ago I was in a bad place. This is back in 2009, 2010, even into 2011 a little bit. I was in a bad place. I was depressed. I was down, down and out. And I reached out to Brother Donovan and he suggested that I read a book. And I, I, he sent this book to me. And as I was reading through it, written by a, a saved Catholic woman, and she was talking about periods of depression within the Christian life. And part of that book said, when you hit that low point and you feel like you're in a grave, and I said, yep, that's me. That's how I feel, dead. I feel like I'm in a grave. I, I'm just Nothing brings me joy. I don't feel that, that uh, abundance of life anymore. When you're in that grave, 
and you feel like that, that is when you love God the most. And I threw the book across the room. I said, that, that's, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. There is no way that I love God now more than ever. And I can't remember how many days went by or hours. I don't know. I think it was a couple days. I picked that book back up. And I went back to that page and I continued reading. And I got the, I got the rest of the story. What, what her point was is you, you feel dead and yet you aren't running off to the world to fix it. You're not trying X, Y, and Z to fill this void. You are quietly waiting, even in a frustrated manner. You're just waiting around saying, God, I know you're the only one that can fix this, and I'm so tired of not feeling your presence. And the only thing that can satisfy you is God. And then it hit me. That's, that's exactly right. There's nothing else in this world that can make me feel the way God does. There's nothing that can give me hope or joy. So whatever the case is, if you want to give Him glory, you want to put a smile on His face, you want to make God look great in, in, in the world. That, that, you understand what I mean? Uh, so that men can behold your works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That, that type of thing then while you're in a difficult situation, hang on to His promises. Don't give up. That gives Him great glory. Now verse 21, And being fully persuaded that what He had promised, He was able also to perform. That fits in perfectly with what we've been discussing already. Fully persuaded. Verse 22, And therefore it was imputed to Him for righteousness. Now he's bringing bringing us back to this overall point that he's trying to make. And that is, we receive righteousness not through the law, but because of a promise that God made and we have access to that by faith. Now, it's at this point I'd want to sneak something in. For those of you that are listening to this, possibly um, later on through, through an audio recording, the code that you need to send to, to uh, uh, Janae is Nehemiah 4 verse 10. And even those of you that are listening, I can see several names on the screen. So I know you're attending, but this is our attendance code. So I'm going to ask all of you for that matter to please send this code, Nehemiah 4 verse 10. You can send it to, to uh, the church phone on the WhatsApp, or you can send it in an email to the church email address. But this is how we're going to take attendance. So Nehemiah 4 verse 10. All right, verse number 22, it was imputed to him for righteousness. He got that by faith. Verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it, that it was imputed to him, but for us also. So Paul says that story that you read about Abraham, it's not just history for Abraham. It was written, it was preserved from that generation until now and forever. That story is there standing as an example of how people even now can receive righteousness. So he says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. This is a very short and quick way of, of referring to the gospel, basically. So if somebody believes that God sent His Son 
to pay for our sins and that Jesus not only died but that He rose again. That person can, just like Abraham, receive righteousness because of that faith. We receive righteousness, the righteousness of God, by placing faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Now this is something that I don't think that needs a lot of explanation because I believe you are familiar with the gospel and I hopefully, hopefully, right, you share this with people often and you explain to them how uh, they can be made righteous as well. But if you happen to be listening to this and have questions about it, please, please don't hesitate to email or call or we'd love to fill you in further on that. Now I'm going to just touch on chapter 5 just a little bit. We have just a minute or two and I was hoping to get to do this. So just quickly, I'm only going to get through verse 1. But I do want to get through this. I believe it uh, might be something that can help us even now with the situation that we're in. So chapter 5, here's the outline for it. I'm going to break it down into two parts. Verses 1 to 11, hope versus hard times. Hope versus hard times. And this will be illustrated by Christ dying for the ungodly. So when hard times hits such as what the world is going through now and what we in South Africa are going through now with this lockdown. It's tough times. It's tough. Why should we think that God would do anything for us? We certainly don't deserve it. Well, the point that Paul will make is when Christ died for us, He didn't do that because we deserved that sort of love. He did that while we were yet sinners. So we can have hope even in a hard time, but we'll cover that a little bit more next time. And then verses 12 to 21, the second part of the chapter, Adam versus Christ. Right, so hope versus hard times, Adam versus Christ. You'll see this, this comparison made in the last half of the chapter. And under Adam versus Christ, I have three subpoints: Grace is greater than the law. Righteousness is greater than sin. Life is greater than death. So you can make that grace versus the law, but in each point, Paul shows that grace is greater, righteousness reigns, life prevails, so th these things are greater. So chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we have been made right in the sight of God by faith, we have accepted the righteousness of Christ, and we have our sins have been washed away, we are now reconciled. Um, just turn quickly to verse number 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Look at that word atonement. There's actually, uh, you can make three parts to it if you want. At-one-ment. At-one-ment. What is an atonement? An atonement is a sacrifice that is offered to bring two parties back together. So we were enemies with God. And then because of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, that atonement has been offered. That is a, a satisfying sacrifice. God accepts it. And now when you accept it, you are made one. At one minute, the two become, they get back together. That's reconciled. 
And this is another way to refer to that in verse 1 is we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies. The enmity that was between us is gone now. We have peace with God. So what was keeping us apart, Isaiah said it, your sins have separated between you and your God. Those sins have been now taken away, and now we have this relationship, this closeness with God. Now, I want to speak quickly about the three kinds of peace that you read about in the New Testament, in the Bible. But in this verse, you have a peace with God, a peace with God. This is our standing. Paul is going to deal much, a little bit in chapter 5, but then especially in chapter 6, we're going to look at standing versus state and the two different, uh, how those two things work. Our standing with God is one of peace. We're, we're not His enemy. We are His adopted children. We're in His family. So we have peace with God. That's our standing, and that can never change because of the sacrifice of Christ. We're, we're in good standing. Now, our state, that is our condition, that can daily shift. And there are other ways of referring to that peace. So we have peace with God, but then in the New Testament, you also read about the peace of God. The peace of God. To have peace with God, we get along. The peace of God, this is God giving you His peace. Now, you don't... We have access to that all the time. But in order to enjoy the peace of God, Paul said you have to let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's Colossians 3, verse number 15. In Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, you should know the verses, I'm sure you do. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, this is conditional. You have to pray. You have to be thankful. You have to believe the promises that God has given about your situation, whatever you're going through. Jesus said it like this in John 14, verse 27. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So peace with God, that's reconciliation, and now you're at one. The peace of God, this is a quiet stillness of assurance in your heart that God will handle things. I think that's applicable right now, right? We can have joy that we have been reconciled to God. But now to let the peace of God rule in your heart. Think of it this way. If Jesus is worried about it, you should worry about it. If Jesus isn't worried about it, you have no business worrying about it either. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Now you, you have to apply that. And then your heart is not troubled. And then there's a third one. There's a peace with God, the peace of God, and then there's peace from God. A peace from God. Now, this is very close to the, first, uh, to the uh, previous one. But in Romans 1, verse 7, you see an example of this. And you find this a few times in the New Testament. He says at the end of verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this? Well, I just mentioned a quiet stillness in your heart. Peace from God would be the outward version of that. 
That is, God has fixed the situation, and now there is an outward peace. That problem has calmed down. I think of it whenever the disciples came to Jesus and said, Master, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus stood up on the side of that boat and said, Peace be still. And, that, and everything just hushed, and there was a great calm. Now, the disciples should have had a peace in their heart because, hey, the master's in the boat. He said we're going to make it to the other side, so we need not worry. So their heart shouldn't have been troubled. But then when Jesus calmed the storm, that's a peace from the Lord. So I would make that small distinction there. All right, so that's as far as we're going to make it for tonight. I just wanted to slip that part in about peace because I'm sure we could all use the peace of God. We could certainly use peace from God. And if tonight you've joined us as a visitor and you've never been saved, it would be a great honor to explain to you how you can have peace with God. And maybe tonight's lesson has helped uh, to answer any questions that you might have had about that. Uh, students, those of you that have joined tonight in with the uh, live stream lesson, obviously uh, I'm going to struggle to take your questions. I know that the chat section, I, sorry, I'm doing this because I'm pointing at my phone. I can see that some people have uh, uh, made some comments, but we had a bit of a snafu the other night when, when I did the student meeting my chat section just stopped working. And I don't know, maybe even tonight it's done it again. I'm not sure. So I don't trust that chat section just yet. It's probably me not knowing how to use it. But if you have any questions about the lesson tonight, please feel free to email them to me and I'll be more than happy to uh, send you an answer. Or maybe even next class I can, I can try to explain it in case something wasn't clear. But I appreciate everybody joining in. So if you would, bow your heads and let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll bring this lesson to a close. Father, thank you this evening for your wonderful, wonderfully sure promises. And God, we believe everything you've said, because that's the kind of God you are. You have earned our trust. You have shown yourself faithful. You cannot deny yourself. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Lord, I'm, it sounds too good to be true to think that You would offer us the free gift of salvation. I'm so glad You've made it available. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this reconciliation we have with You. And that peace, oh Lord, these days especially, Please, God, we seek, we crave to have that peace of God ruling in our hearts that we would not worry about what's going on, but that we would genuinely trust You to provide all of our need. Lord, I pray for each and every student, each and every person that listened tonight. Might they take what they've heard and go a little deeper. Please, let them meditate on it. Let them feed off of this Word and help them to grow thereby. Thank You for Your help tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for your time tonight. And Lord willing, I will see you, even if it's only through technology, I'll see you soon.